0: All right, good afternoon, men. This is a seminar called God versus Government, and I'm Nathan Busnitz. On the screen, we have James Coates, who we had really hoped was going to be able to join us in person at this year's Shepherds Conference, but uh, was not able to come. So we did the next best thing, which was arrange for him to be on the Zoom call with us this afternoon. The title of this seminar, God Versus Government, comes from the title of a book that James and I had the opportunity to co-author. What it is, is really the story of what happened here at Grace Community Church with our legal battles with Los Angeles County Department of Public Health, and then also what happened at uh, Parallel Times up in Edmonton, Alberta at Grace Life Edmonton. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. I know we don't have a long time this afternoon, and just personally and selfishly, I would really like to get back to hear Mike Riccardi's session starting at 2 o'clock. So we won't keep you late. That's my goal today. But what I'm really excited about is having the opportunity mainly to hear from James. So uh, you guys got to hear from me this morning, And I would enjoy listening more than talking during this session. And so really what this is going to be is an opportunity for me to ask James some questions about his experience. I'll chime in a little bit, but I see this more as an opportunity to interview him. Uh, Before we get started with some questions that I have for James, I did want to just make you aware of one other book that's also available in the book tent. It's called Resisting Tyranny. And it's written by Tim Cantrell, and I think Tim's here. Are you here, Tim? Okay, awesome. So, um, Tim is a pastor in South Africa, and he experienced similar challenges. I know all of you in this room can resonate with the challenges of the last two years. So, we understand that our story is not unique to us but we were grateful for the opportunity to learn what the Lord had to teach us over the past two years, and that's what we want to talk about today. And if you're interested in thinking through these things more, even if I have to kind of get out of here quickly at the end to go back to the main session, uh, Tim would be a great resource for you. Okay, well, James, welcome, brother. It's, uh, It's awesome to see you. Uh, I thought maybe we could just start by you telling, well, giving a greeting to the men, and then just telling us a little bit about how things are going for you up at Grace Life Edmonton.
1: Yeah, well, it's good to see you all. I guess I'm I'm unclean and unable to enter your country, but uh, but it's good to be with you through this avenue. Things are going well at Grace Life. We're we're nearly tripled in size at this point in time. We've had a number of Sundays over 900. In attendance and we were about 350 on average prior to COVID-19 so now we're trying to administrate and put in place the infrastructure that needs to be in place to shepherd those folks adding to our staff and everything that goes along with that we've grown out of our facility and so we're we're in preliminary talks about acquiring land building a new building and being able to to all meet in one service we're in two services at present so it's, uh, it's there's a lot going on, uh, meeting new folks all the time. There was a time when I tried to know everyone's name and, and get to know everyone and be involved in their lives, and we're just well beyond that now. It's virtually impossible, which means we've got to build out even more our Bible study shepherds ministry and increase the number of Bible studies that we have in our church to accommodate those folks. And, and then we shepherd the study shepherds as they sh- shepherd the folks in their, in their studies So, yeah, things are going well, and we're just trying to uh, keep up with the evolution of things.
0: So, James, we were talking actually on Wednesday here at the conference about the fact that Shepherds Conference, at least for us in California, has kind of marked both the beginning and the end of the health restrictions related to COVID-19. It was one week after the last Shepherds Conference, March 13th, (laughs) twenty twenty when LA shut everything down, and it was just a couple weeks ago that they opened things back up in terms of mask mandates and those kinds of things. So we feel like Shepherds Conference has been kind of the bookend. But James, I was hoping you could talk to the men a little bit about what were things like when COVID first hit in terms of the decisions, the conversations, the things that were happening behind the scenes at your church with your elders I know these men had similar conversations with their leadership teams, but just talk a little bit about your experience.
1: Well, I think those discussions were characterized initially as being ignorant. Like we were, we were ignorant with respect to the severity of the virus Uh, ignorant, even with respect to our, our legal rights under our charter of rights and freedoms in Canada. And so when the governing authorities imposed restrictions on church gatherings and everything else. And there were uh, fines connected to breach of those restrictions, starting at a hundred thousand dollars for the first offense and then $500,000 for the second offense with the ignorance of the virus and the ignorance of our, our illegal rights. um, You know, that, that bathed a lot of those discussions and, and certainly shaped in some in some regard the the direction that we took initially there was also a tension immediately Romans 13 and the call to be submissive to government and Hebrews ten twenty five and the need to not neglect the gathering of the saints so that tension was felt immediately and then with some skepticism and reluctance we opted to comply which really seemed to be the going rate I mean we weren't aware of any churches that had opted to defy the governing authorities at that particular point. And so we, we complied and then let the data roll in uh, as we kind of surveyed the severity of COVID-19 and, and all the government was doing. Yeah.
0: You mentioned that tension between Romans 13 and Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And we certainly felt that same tension here at Grace Community. And ultimately, the decision that our elder team came to is that the submission to the government comes with an exception, right? Acts five twenty nine. we must obey God rather than men, whereas Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, there is no exception. And so ultimately, uh, that text drove our decision to reopen. Uh, James, can you talk a little bit about what motivated your leadership team to reopen your doors. When did you know that it was time? How did you know that it was time? Talk to us, talk to us a little bit about the principles behind that decision.
1: Well, we got to probably May, June, toward the end of May, and uh, beginning of June, our premier, who would be effectively our governor, had determined that he was not going to extend the declared public health emergency, and so that would take the teeth out of the legislation, and that was signaling that even he was looking at the severity of COVID-19 and recognizing that it wasn't everything they said it was going to be, and I began at that point in time as well to preach on Romans 13 the first time and um, and then addressed, you know, really a, a fundamental, a basic understanding of Romans 13 that we would all sign up for with respect to the limitations on governmental authority, and that there does come a point when we have to obey God, not men, just as you've said. And then I preached on Hebrews, uh, the, the, the the whole paragraph that Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 are in and just address the significance, the the importance of the corporate gathering. And, and those two sermons in conjunction with all of the data that had rolled in, in conjunction with uh, even our premier, acknowledging that, that um, I mean, he referred to COVID nineteen as influenza or the flu like six times in a speech. So he was basically putting them on par with each other. And we thought, well, it's time to open our doors. and And our people were a number of our people were ready for that already, and and some weren't. But we, uh, it was in June that we opened our doors, and we had to shut down for a couple of Sundays. We opted to out of a, an abundance of caution because we did get some COVID cases, and so we thought. We would just uh, go to live stream for two Sundays just to kind of be cautious with respect to, you know, the spread of the virus. And and then after those two Sundays, we opened our doors again and uh, never looked back.
0: James, I remember you saying once in one of these other interviews that we've done that even initially, though, there was this caution and this concern for the health of your congregation that even initially there was a reticence to shut down and go completely virtual, that there was always that tension that you were feeling. Can you talk a little bit about that reticence and that tension?
1: Well, I think it comes from recognizing the critical nature of the corporate gathering, the, the means of grace the Spirit uses to build up the body of Christ. They're tethered to the corporate gathering. The preaching of God's word is, is meant to be an in-person um activity event and so there needs to be the the body coming together on a regular basis to minister to each other we recognize that the corporate gathering is not a spectator sport where you just show up receive and leave our church has always been a church that fellowships long after the service and so to not be bringing our people together was was isolating them from one another and effectively shutting them off from doing the work of service that they are required to do we equip the saints as pastors to equip the congregation to do the work of service the government was saying you can't do that and that was ultimately in the way of the church being built up and so um we recognized that that our our spiritual growth and development was being harmed by virtue of the fact that we were being virtual with respect to our gatherings yeah you the word "ecclesia" or ecclesia means
0: assembly, and it's, it's hard to be an assembly if you're not together. <laughs> Amen. Uh, so, James, I know for us here at Grace Community, we had people who it just took them a lot longer to process all of this, to think through the principles, to think through the dangers of the potential health risk, and to get to a point where they were convinced that this was the right thing to do and comfortable coming, can you talk a little bit about how you and your leadership team shepherded the people in your church, especially those who weren't immediate in their agreement with the decision to reopen?
1: Well, when we made the decision to reopen following the preaching of those two sermons, that's when feedback begins to roll in, and as the feedback rolls in, you now need to address that feedback, the questions that are being raised. So we began to do messaging to our congregation that was answering directly the questions that were being asked to bring them into the rationale for what we were doing, to bring them along. And and many of our folks began to come back without any concern and were supportive. There were some folks that uh, weren't, and ultimately they were free to continue to live stream. I mean, we were opening our doors and giving the The decision to the congregation to decide whether or not they were going to attend, mask, social distance, and so we weren't imposing anything on our congregation with respect to their 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 need to be there. We recognized that people were going to take their own time in assessing things and had different levels of of um, risk they were willing to undertake. And we even provided uh, places within our our facility that would facilitate them social distancing and masking and, and all of that as well. So we just, we began to respond directly to the questions that were being asked of us and that that then allowed them to understand and appreciate the rationale behind our decision to open.
0: Yeah, and I think the same thing was true in here. And I'm sure you men experienced this in your churches as well. It's a opportunity to exercise 2 Timothy 2.25, to be patient, right? 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4, to shepherd the flock of God among you in a way that was gracious, kind, still resolute with conviction. But as James explained at their church, we did the same thing here. We continued to provide outdoor meeting space. That's why that tent gives us PTSD. And also, uh, and also live stream options, uh, because we knew that it was taking some people a little bit longer to be convinced and Romans 14, we wanted to love our brother, and also uh, we wanted to really exhibit and support the principle of Christian conscience. Um, James, one common objection that I know we got here, and I'm sure you got it as well, was the objection that by holding in-person services, by having church, that you were being somehow unloving to your neighbors, whether neighbors in the community or neighbors that are part of the congregation. Uh, I heard the Second Commandment used a lot as an allegation, sort of a charge that those of us who were being open were not heeding the Second Commandment. you have any thoughts in response to that? How would you respond to that kind of objection?
1: Well, effectively, that rationale makes the Second Commandment the greatest commandment. And that's problematic at the outset, because if you don't have the first commandment where it rightly is that we're to love God with all our mind, soul and strength, your your understanding of the second is going to be shaped uh, incorrectly. God is love. We know John, 1 John 4. So love is bound up in its very essence. He defines and determines what love is. And so we, we go to the scriptures to discern how it is that we're to love our neighbor. It's not it's not that. Love for neighbor is bound up in the court of public opinion where, you know, whatever the whims of culture are saying love is that we then have to adjust how it is that we love. No, love is fixed. It's defined by God and his word. And so um, coming together in obedience to God to worship the Lord Jesus Christ is the best thing we can do for our neighbor. Uh, the glory of God is the best thing for our neighbor. Our neighbor. Uh, To be salt and light in this world is the best possible thing that we can do for our neighbor. Complying with the governing authorities uh, when they are infringing on a sphere of authority that's not theirs and are effectively forbidding us to do that which God commands is not loving our neighbor. Uh, That's being disobedient to Christ and, and that disobedience is the exact opposite of what the second commandment even calls us to. So I think it's important to start there. I also think too, Uh, you know, at some point, you do have to think critically about what's going on in the world. And so the person that wants to say that love for neighbor requires that you basically comply with the governing authorities assumes the dogma coming from the governing authorities is sound, that it's legitimate, that it's real science and everything else. And so there's no question at some point in time, you're going to have to make a decision as to whether or not you uh, believe that what's being propagated is is true truth or whether it's just sheer propaganda. And from our vantage point, and I think it was evident in California that this was uh, an agenda that was being uh, foisted upon uh, the citizenry to uh, bring about fear and increase government control. And so to stand by and let that happen while well, you've got uh, livelihoods being destroyed, people losing their jobs, um, you know, we, we have a, an inside... A scoop on what's been going on in terms of drug overdoses, suicides, and everything else. The, the impact of the lockdowns on our neighbor were horrific. And so uh, the people that are saying, well, you know, you got to love your neighbor, and you're not doing that are just they're, they're not in touch with reality as it really is in terms of the effect of the lockdown uh, on on the lives of real people.
0: Yeah, how can the church continue to be salt and light if the church is not gathering? And I think we saw the impact, even here in the U.S., we saw the impact of the absence of the church's influence on some of the things that happened shortly after the lockdowns began. Well, I want to ask you about really your experience one year ago. It's hard to believe, but it's one year ago since you were imprisoned. And I wanted you to talk a little bit, maybe first, about why you believed this issue was an issue worth going to jail for. And then I'll ask you about your time behind bars, but maybe answer that first question.
1: Well, it it wasn't really a matter of determining whether it was worth going to jail for or not. I mean, that's not, that's not the way you approach a situation like this. Ultimately we're called to be obedient to Christ and obey his commandments. And so as this situation came to us and was, was, pressed upon us, we had to determine what obedience to Christ would look like. And if obedience to Christ was going to take us into a jail cell, well, then we would have to be willing to do that because he's purchased us. We've been bought with a price. We're not our own. So it wasn't so much a matter of determining whether or not it was worth it. It was just an issue of determining what does Christ require of us? What's he calling of me, requiring of me? And, And then it's a matter of, leaning on his grace, being strong in the grace which he supplies to be able to to carry that out, even if it results in my imprisonment. Can you talk us through some of the events
0: in early 21 or December of 2020 into January and February of 2021, those events that led up to your arrest and ultimately your imprisonment?
1: Well, the governing authorities were trying to use every possible avenue they could to bring about our submission. They attempted to use the media and to just villainize us in the court of public opinion. They were bringing the RCMP, which is our police service, to our gatherings. They used the court system and a court order that we defied and could have been found in contempt of court for having a service. And that would have potentially resulted in up to two years in prison. That they used every possible avenue they could. And the last tool they they employed was an undertaking. And in the undertaking, I was arrested on Sunday, February 7th, following our service in uh, our our office. I was read my rights and I wasn't cuffed or anything like that, but I was ultimately arrested. I had to confirm that I was being arrested. And they're like, yes, you are being arrested right now. You are under arrest. And And I had to then could uh, sign a document that would indicate that I agreed to this undertaking and the undertaking was the same old thing they were trying to get us to, to obey the public health act and I couldn't do that so I told them yeah I can't sign that and they said that's fine we'll indicate refuse to sign so they wrote that in but they said it was still binding on me so then the next Sunday the 14th when we met and I preached uh directing government to its duty from Romans 13 um, so the second time now preaching Romans 13 and this whole thing, uh, that was, uh, the Sunday they required that I turn myself in, which I did on the Tuesday that resulted in me being brought before a justice of the peace. I was given a, a condition of release. The condition was the same old condition. I have to comply with the public health act. I, I couldn't do that. And so I refused to sign the condition and was taken to a maximum security jail cell. So, James, talk us through that. Talk us
0: through what it was like to experience um, imprisonment. I know you go into all of this in the book, but I just, for our brothers here, I want them to hear a little bit about what it was like to experience that. And then maybe even talk a little bit about some of the extraordinary things that God did while you were behind bars.
1: Well I think when the news dawned and the 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 implications fell that because I wouldn't sign this condition I was going to end up being held in custody and then you know taken to the Evanston Remand Center it was pretty um it was pretty weighty for sure and um there wasn't really any temptation to compromise but you still have to deal with the implications of walking in obedience and I felt that pretty significantly and it's difficult to explain, but, but going to prison felt like the way you've always thought it would feel like. And, and I don't know how to put that into words, but I, I presume that on some level, whether it was through some, a book or a movie or something else, you've gotten a sense of what that would feel like. And that's exactly what it feels like. And it's a, it's a, a challenging thing to, to digest but um but the lord was there with me and i had support from my lawyer who's a believer james kitchen he was there in those moments my wife also was incredibly supportive i mean if i didn't have a wife that was as um convicted about the 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 church coming together corporately as i am if not more then uh, then that would have been a difficult a difficult road to walk so it was it was challenging, but then when I got there, I, I came to realize that all of the providence that you experience in your life, all the time you're experiencing in prison. When you go into prison, you're you're entering into a whole new world. There's a whole new culture, and you're wondering: Are you going to be okay? Are you going to be safe? Will you be beat up? I mean, you've got you've got ideas about things that could possibly take place in prison. That stuff's on your mind as you're going in. You really have no idea what you're stepping into. And, and, you know, Psalm 139 is critical, you know, whether I make my bed in heaven, or in shul, the Lord is there, you can't flee from his presence. And so uh, he was with me in prison, his hand was upon me, he was watching over me, protecting me, I saw the same shepherd care that I've always experienced uh, in prison. And the Lord has always blessed obedience in my life. And and he did the same thing in this case as well. Um, When you're obedient to Christ, he blesses that. And even if that results in our death, I mean, it's a blessing to enter the presence of the Lord, to live as Christ and die as gain. So uh, the Lord was good to me, cared for me, watched over me, and and gave me lots of opportunity to to minister the gospel.
0: Yeah, talk a little bit about that, some of those gospel opportunities that you had with men behind bars. I mean, you you kind of started a little mini
1: prison ministry while you were there. Yeah, those opportunities really came to me. I didn't even have to go looking for them. They, they were in demand. I mean, they were coming to my jail cell once I got out of quarantine and they wanted me to pray for them. They they were sharing their life, their, their life struggles with me. I was giving them the gospel, praying for them. I had a guy ask me if we could do a Bible study. I said, sure. We went down and began a Bible study through the gospel of John. What's really interesting about being in prison is that a lot of the guys claim to be Christians. So one of the challenges is you you almost have to get them unsaved to get them saved. And so I did that a little bit in the gospel of John, you know, talking about the need for regeneration, a transformed life, um, really just ministered the gospel to them from every angle I possibly could. And, uh, and so there were lots of opportunities to do that. Not so much with the guards because they're, they keep their distance, but, um, uh, but they were largely good to me as well. And, and, uh, yeah, the Lord was the Lord was faithful. James, can you tell the story of
0: what happened when you left and even the chaplain that you met with? Because that's just an incredible story. Um can you share that with the men?
1: Yeah, so I was uh I was I'd been in uh in in court that Monday, I think it was the twenty second of March, and I knew I was gonna be released. And, uh, the, the news, we have access to radio in the jail cell and there's a talk radio news radio station that's on there. And so they were always talking about me. And so they had begun to announce that I was going to be released that day. And so, um, you know, I was kind of, you know, wondering how it was all going to go. Um, I was, I was waiting for the call that you're, you're, you're leaving. I'd already been told that I, I had to pack my stuff and be ready. Then the chaplain came and he he wanted to spend some time with me. And so I grabbed my bag, thinking that this could be it, that while I'm talking to him, they may tell me it's time. And uh, and so I grabbed my bag and I wanted to connect with this other gentleman down the hall and just let him know I'd be praying for him. Uh, I just, he was a guy that was on my heart from my interactions. and 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 so as I did that, there was already kind of a ruckus coming from the jail cells. They thought I was leaving at that point too. And that was a little bit of an inkling of what was going to happen when it was time to go. But they, the guards hollered up to me. I was on the third floor, and they're saying, you don't need your bag. Put your bag back. So I put my bag back, went down, spent some time with the chaplain. And normally you'd get a room, but in this case, there weren't any available. So we were just right out on the floor at a table having a conversation. And then while we're talking, they announced, Coates, you're leaving. So, um, so he and I both stand up. We, we, we shake hands. He's praying for me. I head upstairs, grab my bag. My uh, my my floor was actually out on exercise, so I could say goodbye to all those guys as I was leaving. And uh, so I come down the stairs with my bag, and I'm I'm saying goodbye to all the guys, heading toward the door. And the place is just kind of there's noise coming from the jail cells. The guys that are still in their their cells, about two floors of guys. Are in there, and they're—they're—it's like they're banging on their door. So as I'm heading toward the door, I stop, turn around, and I wave, and the place just shook. And it was a—it was an epic moment. It was like a—it was like a Hollywood moment. In all honesty, I—I I looked over at the guards, and I could tell they were impacted. I mean, they, you could just see it on their faces that this—they knew this was a moment. And uh, the chaplain was there to witness all of that. We've talked since then, and he's mentioned that—that um, that it's a moment he'll never forget. And uh, yeah, just a, a really wonderful moment. And the, the, the sweetness of that moment ended quickly because from that point on, as you're being taken out of prison, you're treated like property and it's a really dehumanizing experience. So the, the glory of that moment was uh, quickly uh, eclipsed by just the, the dehumanizing experience of, of being treated like property and taken out of the, the jail facility. So I know even after you were released, there were still
0: some drama with the church, the authorities coming and putting up fencing and you guys not being able to meet. And You guys became really an underground church in Canada for a couple of months. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like?
1: Yes, yeah, so we had one service. Um, the governing authorities tried to get into our building for that service, which they hadn't done the entire time I was in prison. And so I get a a word like two minutes before going up to basically have my first moment to speak to our congregation that they're outside and they want in. And we had two guys that were uh, trying to keep them out and did a, an amazing job. There's video of that that you can watch as they interact with the governing authorities very graciously, but but we're appealing to, our, to the criminal code where they can't come in and they're appealing to the public health act where they can. And so there's just a stalemate and we were able to keep them out um, and, and just have that, that moment to ourselves. But from there, after that service, on the Wednesday of that week, they uh, broke into our building, changed our locks. They, they put up three layers of fencing on our property so we wouldn't even be able to gather outside on our property. And, um, and they basically you know took our church from us. And then be, we became the, the Underground Church of Canada, going from one location to the next to to worship our Lord, which was a wonderful experience, by the way. I mean, you know, it was difficult because we didn't know if the governing authorities were hunting us down, and at one point they were, and there's a close call that took place. But we had moved locations, and so they they didn't get us. But um, yeah, I mean, the the w- worshiping the Lord under the the blue sky and 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 the sun, it was really a, a wonderful experience, and just built you know, greater love and affection for one another into the body and, um, and strengthened our church. So really it was a wonderful thing.
0: Yeah, it's, it's just amazing. You don't think that these kinds of things are going to happen in a Western country like Canada or the United States, where churches are going to be persecuted and prosecuted simply because they want to assemble, they want to meet. And I remember talking to Tim Cantrell, who I mentioned earlier, his church had to also go underground for a time in South Africa And Tim, you can correct me afterwards if I get this wrong, but I remember him saying that they were reaching out to some of the brothers in China to find out how does an underground church do what it does, which is just an amazing thing to consider that we're at a point in history where these kinds of things can happen. Uh, James... uh, Talk to us a little bit about what's happened since. I know you gave us an update on your church already, but when did you get your building back? How did that process work? Land the plane for us on your story.
1: Yeah, we got the, the building back on July 1st, Canada Day, and worshipped on July 4th in our building, so Independence Day. And, um, and we were in our, we've were we been in our building ever since. Now, uh, an emergency was, the third one was announced end of September, of 2021. And so we were wondering would this mean round two with the governing authorities, or would they would they leave us alone? And I was of the mind that they were going to leave us alone, that they realized the first round was a big miscalculation on their end politically, that it did them much harm and and did the glory and honor of Christ much good. So we I was of the mind that they weren't they weren't going to do anything, and they left us alone. They they didn't they didn't um, they didn't come. They didn't they didn't bother us. We we were able to worship the entire time. Uh, the media didn't talk about us. The the governing authorities didn't talk about us. And by the way, it's really obvious that the governing authorities and the media are are working together in cahoots because the media doesn't do what they don't want, and the media does what they do want. So the fact that we got no attention during our gatherings, but God, as much as we did a year prior, is evidence that they're they're working in in concert with each other as they navigate these things. So, James, having gone through all of this, I know we uh,
0: address this in more detail in the book, but passages like Romans 13, passages like 1 Peter 2, Titus 1, uh, 1 Timothy 2, passages where... The believer's relationship to the governing authorities is one that ought to be characterized by an attitude of submission. You've preached through some of those texts. You've thought through all of those texts. Can you talk just a little bit about a perspective on those texts as it relates to what you experienced and the choices and the stand that you and your leadership took?
1: Well, I think as it relates to Romans thirteen, that's the big one because the the opening command is is pretty straightforward and comes with a you know a, a weight that requires that you be able to navigate that and understand that in the fuller context of Scripture and even within the context of Romans thirteen itself. And so, I think that's the the critical one. But but even then, I mean. We all recognize and have always recognized it's basic that that Romans 13 is not giving the governing authorities total authority. We know there's always been an exception on Romans 13. The big debate has been whether or not this season has triggered that exception. And of course, it has undeniably. And the only way you get around that is to have a very, very low ecclesiology where you can basically slice and dice the the corporate gathering into, you know, minced meat and have it still be the corporate gathering that you can do everything virtual, modify what the corporate gathering is without actually changing the very nature of it. And so I think for us coming to the realization that the the, the line had been breached, the governing authorities were out of their lane. They were infringing on the terms of worship. Christ sets the terms of worship. He dictates that, not the governing authorities. Once you begin to carve that out and recognize this is an issue of authority and jurisdiction, uh, then it becomes a a necessity as the elders of the church to assert the authority of Christ over his church, come what may. And so you can do that and still be submissive. You can do that and, and still be submissive to the governing authorities. How do you do that? By virtue of subjecting yourself to the consequences and you see that in the apostles just as you so faithfully preached this morning um the apostles gave it to the governing authorities to judge whether it was right to obey uh them or god and and in their minds it was going to be obey god and that that meant the governing authorities could do whatever it was that they wanted and and they were going to submit to the consequences but but their responsibility was to be obedient so i think um i think that's i think that's that's critical that, that as you, even as you disobey the governing authorities that you do it with an attitude of submissiveness, because that's how Christ did it. And, and you see that as well in first Peter two, that though being reviled, he was not reviled. He did not revile in turn.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's helpful. So COVID, it seems like is almost over. I don't know if that's for sure or not. Every time we kind of hope that it's over, it feels like it kind of comes back, and we're we're just waiting for the next variant. But COVID in some ways felt like a dress rehearsal, maybe, for the kind of things that we might experience as the church in the future. So, James, can you talk a little bit about how Two things, the lessons that you've learned in this process, how those have strengthened your resolve personally and the resolve of your church. And then secondly, why the larger evangelical church in North America needs to learn these lessons because of threats that seem to be coming down the the pipeline that are bigger and different than COVID-19.
1: Well, in my preaching ministry, in the appropriate passages, for a long time, for years, I've been pointing out the, that the horizon does not look good for the church in North America and that there's going to come a time when persecution is going to come to the church. And that time has come. And, And you know, it's amazing. And I think we've talked about this, Nathan. I, I titled that sermon from December 20, At The Time Has Come, and, and and couldn't get away from that title, even though I wasn't entirely sure why I was calling it the time has come. And and what that that title signifies is the time has come and that now persecution is here. And persecution, both biblically and historically, typically comes through the government. It's through the governing authorities that persecution comes. So it is now time for the church of Jesus Christ to stand tall and oppose tyranny in order for us to be the, the light that we are to the world. And so um, obedience to Christ now is going to require that we, that we uh, resist the, the, the overreach of government into the life of the church. And so this dress rehearsal was critical for that because it really sets the table. Grace Life Church is in a healthier place now in order to be ready for the next battle than many churches that didn't take the same stand. And, um, and and they're going to have to stand at some point. And Lord willing, you know, the grace will be there for them to do that. And I, I'm confident it will be, though I wish more churches had stood with us this time around. James,
0: what do you think some of those issues might be? Just as you're looking out at the horizon, you talked about the trajectory of evangelicalism. What do you see as some of those threats that pastors are going to be facing in the next perhaps five to 10 years, or maybe even sooner?
1: Well, certainly biblical sexuality is one, and, and that's already begun effectively in our country, as many know, given the initiative that took place back on January 16th. So that's a big one. Um, all of the creation norms that we see in Genesis 1 and 2 are under attack. The family, sexuality, sexuality, the very fact that, I mean, even climate change is an attack on creation norms. It's, it's You pointed this out really well. It's worshiping the creation over the creator. Um, the, the whole idea that, that climate change is an existential threat to mankind is a myth. The only threat to mankind with regard to creation is God. God's going to bring an end of the world on his time. It will not end a moment sooner. So I think uh, climate change is a big one. We have already heard our prime minister talk about the lessons learned from COVID-19 are going to shape the way we deal with climate change. And so the whole lockdown approach seems like it's going to be brought into vogue again through climate change, as far as, you know, a real present reality. And I'm still trying to get my finger on this whole thing. I think what's going on in Ukraine, you know, I wrestled with this uh, just recently, trying to figure out what is going on in Ukraine. How is it that the Democrats and Republicans are all saying the exact same thing? They disagree on everything, but they agree on this. And and I think it's the same answer. And I'm still trying to put it all together, but I think it's to increase governmental control. And so somehow this, this conflict in Ukraine is being capitalized on, and we'll see that unfold as the days and weeks carry on but i think the answer is the same government globalism and everything else is all about government control and as as government control increases it has to basically shut down every other sphere of authority that would oppose its its tyranny and and the church is going to be critical to that and that's why the church can't just comply with everything or else we're just going to end up complying ourselves um you know right into a place where we're not salty anymore Mm. Yeah, that's
0: true. As the culture gets darker, the light needs to shine brighter. And certainly we see in the book of Revelation, our eschatology informs us as to how all of this fits within God's sovereign purposes. And our courage and our hope ultimately comes from knowing that we win in the end. But uh, things are going to get more and more challenging in the present. Well, James, I want to give you, um, we're going to bring our conversation here to a close, but I want to give you one maybe final word of encouragement, uh, final exhortation for these brothers here who are pastoring churches all across the United States and around the world. Uh, What what would you want to leave them with? What word of encouragement would you have for them as they seek to be faithful and stand firm?
1: Well, let me go back to a question you asked previously with regard to just whether it was worth it to go to prison uh, for the issue of keeping the church open. And uh, I addressed that the way that I did uh, earlier, and I, I, I stand by that. I will say this, though. The stand that we took resulted in the lordship of Christ being heralded, being, being Christ being exalted, And so I think now is the time for us as the church of Jesus Christ to herald the lordship of Christ over everything and to live the implications of his lordship out, both in our individual personal sphere, in our personal walk with Christ, as well as corporately in the body of Christ, as well as our people as they go into the public sphere for work and everything else. So I think this is a wonderful time to herald and model the lordship of Christ and to make that there's no more compelling reason to, to be alive than to, to put his glory on display. And, and heralding his lordship over everything is a, is a wonderful way to do that. And so I would encourage the men to, to make the lordship of Christ their passion, their zeal, the reason they get up out of bed in the morning and let that shape everything they do. Amen.
0: All right. Well, James, thank you. It's, uh, it's good to see you. I've been given the privilege of seeing James on a screen quite often recently because we're doing some interviews together, and I'm always grateful for your biblically sound and conviction-grounded responses. So, James, thank you so much for taking some time to be with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me, guys. Appreciate it. All right. Well, we're going to land the plane there. If you're interested in hearing more about James's story, or if you want to get into the biblical principles, kind of the explanation behind why he did what he did, why Grace Church did what we did, then you can find that in the God versus Government book. Uh, Also, again, I just uh, want to recommend, if you're interested in this topic, talking to Tim Cantrell. He's done a lot of you're on this side, Tim. Sorry, I, I've been I've been looking the wrong the wrong way. He's he's right over here, Tim. You want to stand? Th- there he is. So, thank you, brother. And his book again is resisting tyranny, and you can find that also in the book ten. Well, I I wanted to serve you, brothers, in two ways. One, I wanted to hear from James, and two, I wanted to give you time to get a seat in the worship center. So. It's quarter to two, I'm going to pray for us, and then you will be dismissed. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for just the compelling examples of testimonies like we just heard, of a faithful pastor who really was doing nothing different than having church every Sunday, and was given the opportunity to suffer for your name's sake, And he has rejoiced in that, and he has continued to be obedient in that, and it certainly serves as an example to me of the kind of steadfast faithfulness that you call us to as your servants and ministers. So Lord, I I pray that these men were encouraged even by hearing a little bit of that story this afternoon, and Lord, we're grateful for all that we've heard this week. We're eager to hear your word opened again In just a few minutes in the main session, we commit all of this to you. It's for your name's sake, for your glory, and we pray these things in that name. Amen.